So we saw a lot of that consumption switch to the residential sector. And as a result, household bills went up significantly. This is coinciding with a time when people are very sick as well, and when many people have lost their jobs. Uh, so the, the confluence of these many factors is, is without dispute what has caused a rise in energy insecurity over this time. Energy is on topic with IU. My name is Kenny Smith with the Media School at Indiana University Bloomington, and I'm speaking with Dr. Sonia Carley, a professor in the O'Neill School of Public and Environmental Affairs at Indiana University. Dr. Carley, thank you for joining us today. Well, thank you so much for having me. You study energy policy, markets, and economic development, among other things, and you have some new research titled Energy Insecurity and the Urgent Need for Utility Disconnection Protections. And the paper, I would say, grabs you right from the summary. And before we get into the paper and all of the implications, bring us all up to speed on how you and your colleagues use the term. When you say energy insecurity, you mean... Yeah, energy insecurity refers to when a household or an individual is unable to pay their energy bills uh, or if they are unable to avoid being disconnected from their service provider. And so with that in mind, we're talking about the urgent need for disconnection protections. Right away in the paper, you're saying a great many Americans are in this position, that they are energy insecure. How many people are we potentially looking at here? We're talking about millions of households and many, many millions of individuals across the United States suffer from energy insecurity on an annual basis. So we're looking at millions of Americans. And in your study, you had a particular group of people And this study goes through the pandemic era, if you will. Talk about the rates of energy insecurity that you're looking at here in terms of the paper's methodology. Yeah, my collaborators and I actually followed about 2,000 households over the course of the pandemic, the first year of the pandemic, from roughly March of 2020 to March, April of 2021. And what we found was over the course of this year that 24% of all low-income respondents, so this is, our sample was focused specifically on low-income residents, 24% of them struggled to pay their energy bills. 18% of them had gotten notifications for being disconnected from their service provider, and 8% of them were completely disconnected from their service provider. So these are huge numbers. Almost a quarter of all low-income Americans over the past year suffered from energy insecurity. A situation I'm sure made worse by the circumstances some people have felt and continue to feel because of the impacts of COVID and the larger pandemic issues that we're dealing with. I assume that's the case anyway. Yes, that's exactly right. We do know that uh, energy insecurity is a a chronic and an ongoing problem within the United States. But uh, with the onset of the pandemic, rates of energy insecurity skyrocketed early on and have remained uh, persistently high over the course of the pandemic. Let's humanize that a bit. Who are the people that suffer the most here? Yeah, so we've actually asked this specifically in some of our empirical work. And what we find is that the exact same groups routinely are energy insecure. And that is households that identify as households of color, that is households that are black or Hispanic. We find that households with small children under the age of five are more likely to be energy insecure. And we also find that households with inefficient housing conditions, such as, let's say, a hole in the wall or an HVAC system that doesn't work properly, are more likely. And that households that have medically compromised individuals, specifically those that rely on an electronic medical device, are more likely to be energy insecure and disconnected. And how does that commonality occur? People that are living with some sort of medical device, medical condition that is appropriate. I assume there's an energy drain. 
I think that's right. There's an energy drain. And, and what we've found just from uh, informally talking with uh, medical providers, with, with doctors, is that they oftentimes don't think about the actual electronic drain of a device when they prescribe it. So they don't think about how much it will cost the individual, either sometimes even upfront cost, but then just in terms of the operations cost from drawing electricity over time. And it's very plausible if you're getting sent home with this medically, it's very important for your comfortability, your survivability. And now this other problem exacerbates things as well. That's right. And we don't want people to ration their medical use. We don't want them to ration their oxygen use, for example. You make this point in the paper about this sort of pile-on effect that uh, low-income households, for example, often have higher energy burdens. As you look at that data, what's the how and what's the why of that? Yeah, we often ask questions of ourselves and as researchers as to why so many households are energy insecure. And one explanation for why they're insecure is what's called energy burden. And that refers to the percentage of one's income that they spend on energy or utilities. And the energy burden for a typical household is about 3.5%. But we know from the literature that the energy burden for certain more vulnerable households tend to be much higher uh, upwards of 8% or 10% uh, for households, including households of color, rural communities, for example, um, and and other households that are vulnerable. And when we're talking about percents there, you mean in percents in terms of? The total amount of one's income that they spend on energy. Is this exacerbated as well by the, the pandemic? I noticed that I get a monthly report of what my thermostat's doing, and, and it's different in that time that we spent at home as opposed mm -hmm. to being in the office every day, because I, in the wintertime, last winter, if I'm at home, I would like the heat a little bit higher and that sort of thing. So that just sort of, I guess, adds on to things. Is, is that a part of what's going on? But I would assume on the margins, essentially here. Yeah, actually, no, it was a very large effect that during the pandemic, uh, household residential electricity skyrocketed because instead of going into the office, for example, people were working from home, they were running their devices at home, children were e-learning from home, there are many things that were plugged in, including the heat was on or the AC was on. Uh, so we saw a lot of that consumption switch to the residential sector. And as a result, household bills went up significantly. This is coinciding with the time when people are very sick as well and when many people have lost their jobs. Uh, so the, the confluence of these many factors is, is without dispute what has caused a rise in energy insecurity over this time. And also without dispute, to be sick in this country is to endure a very expensive proposition. As a practical matter, winter is on its way again now. Higher prices have been projected in, in terms of uh, energy consumption for, for all of us trying to keep our homes warm. Bills are piling up. Whatever consequences that may come from that, it would seem to be then, with all of these things in mind, uh, time for a sense of urgency. Obviously so at the consumer level. Do we see that elsewhere in the economic system in this chain of providers to bill payers? Households that struggle with energy insecurity likely struggle from other forms of material hardship as well. And so these same households are struggling to pay uh, not just their energy bill, but also their medical bills, or from what we've learned in our research, they're forgoing their medical bills entirely. They're also struggling to pay their housing and avoid evictions uh, and struggling to put food on the table, which introduces very difficult trade-offs that these households need to make with a fixed budget constraint that they can only spend so much money on each of these things uh, and need to face very difficult conditions such as to heat or eat. So if, if I know that at the household level, this is the circumstance I'm in or someone I care about is in, 
are other people in policy positions and in utility offices, are they aware of these circumstances as well? Or, or is the urgency of the paper that you're presenting here not reached those positions yet? I think that the understanding, the general understanding of the problem of energy insecurity is rising. And that's the good news. Uh, but I don't know that it's rising fast enough to deal with how pervasive of a problem this really is. Uh, so you will hear coverage of energy insecurity on NPR, for example. Um, the government is thinking about energy insecurity. Uh, state governments during the pandemic even put temporary moratoria in place for a little while to help protect their consumers, uh, essentially telling utilities to not disconnect the consumers over that time period. Uh, and utilities are aware of it, too, of course, because they are the ones that that are you know, needing to make the decision about who to disconnect as a result of not paying their energy bills. Uh, so it's a it's a recognized problem, though. I think we have a long way to go for the, the general public to recognize just how much of a um, severe form of material hardship this is for so many millions of American families. When you say not being recognized quickly enough or, or words to that extent, that implies something of a timeline. Do you have an ideal timeline in mind, or are we staring down a timeline right now that we cannot avoid? What are we looking at in a practical sense there? Yeah, well, energy insecurity is is a chronic problem for many households, and it's something that uh, arguably there's a role for government to play in helping alleviate this problem, helping households um, exit from a cyclical process of being reoccurringly in a state of energy insecurity. Um, so if we can act urgently, then we can help these millions of American households. Um, but there's no specific timeline that, that we need to act by. I will note, however, and I think you might have been getting at this earlier, we are headed into the winter months. And as we head into the winter months, uh, generally it's colder. We need to use our heat more. And so household bills will likely rise again as a result. Um, but we're also in a very unique, well, not unique. We are in a very concerning time right now where energy prices are generally rising, gas prices are rising, and we know that we're headed into a fairly brutal winter as a result. Uh, so there is an urgency here, I think, for um, considering what will happen this winter with these households across America that are facing these conditions. Walk me through the stages here. If if I'm having economic problems at home in terms of my own budget, what happens when I am energy insecure? What happens if I get the disconnect notice and I can't make the payments? What happens if uh, my utilities get turned off? Yeah, there's so many severe consequences, honestly, of, of being an energy insecure family. Uh, I noted before that there is the heat or eat dilemma. Of these households need to face uh, trade-offs between whether they spend money on food or they spend money on health care or on their utility bills or their housing and their rent. Um, so there's these trade-offs. We also see households do bill balancing where they pay down a little bit from one bill and then a, a lot from another one one month and then they switch off. So they're basically carrying debt across a whole bunch of different bills. We see households borrow money. They borrow money from friends or neighbors, for example, but they can also borrow money from payday lenders and thereby owe so much more money back in the next month. Uh, and then there's also the, the very extreme conditions of what happens when a household can't keep themselves warm. If they can't pay for their heat, they don't have access to heat because it's been shut off or the same thing with air conditioning units. Um, we know that households suffer from adverse mental and physical health effects from being too cold or too hot. And we also know that households engage in very risky coping strategies essentially to keep their body temperatures 
regulated. Uh, for example, households might um, run a fireplace overnight and have their, their residents sleep around the fireplace, or they might sit in the garage in the car with the heat turned on, thereby exposing themselves to carbon uh, monoxide poisoning. Households might use an oven, for example, that open the oven with, um, let's say the gas is still running and they use that to heat their house or they burn trash within their house. So all of these different strategies are to regulate their body temperatures, but can lead to very adverse health effects and in not rare conditions also lead to death. And it's easy for us to say this in terms of heat, 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 because the weather is turning cooler for us now. But I assume some similar sorts of problems would occur in other seasons of the year if you find yourself in this position as well. That's right. In summer months, even in Indiana, it can be um, it can lead to death if you do not have access to AC units on the hottest days. And there are plenty of other places across the country where it is hot year round and having AC is increasingly necessary in those places. You mentioned the moratoria in the paper that some consumers, some customers and energy providers have been under at various times during the pandemic. And you mentioned how that's not a curative to the problem. Talk a little bit there about it is a thing, it is not solve and make all of this go away. Yeah, so when the pandemic began, starting around March of 2020, many states did put moratoria in place. And these moratoria essentially say that any regulated utility within the state is not allowed to disconnect their consumers. Uh, and over the course of time, we saw many of these. And in fact, at this point, almost all of these have, have lapsed. They've ended. And so we no longer have these temporary protections in place. It's also important to note that not all utilities within a state are regulated in this way. So even with the state moratoria, there still might be certain utilities, such as municipal utilities or cooperative utilities, who are not told to freeze their disconnections. Uh, but the moratoria did help. We see evidence that it helped. It helped those households that were facing these different uh, forms of material hardship shift some of their resources to spend money on other things like medical care, for example, or food. And we know that from some of the, the research that we're working on right now. I assume when the moratoria did lapse in various places, it was business as usual for the utilities and those disconnections began anew. Yeah, not only was it business as usual in that utilities started to disconnect again, those households that were unable to pay their bills, uh, but it's also the case that we found just at, in looking at some Indiana utilities and some of the data that they had available through the Public Utility Commission website, that disconnections actually skyrocketed after the moratoria were released. So households were allowed essentially to build up debt over that time. And then once the moratoria ended, then the utility proceeded with the disconnections. Um, so this suggests that there's more intervention that's needed. There needs to be help for these households paying off their debt over the time period in which uh, the moratoria or the, the disconnections are frozen. I assume part of that skyrocketing is a consumer issue. If I don't have to pay, I'm still accruing a debt and still is going to come due and thus you see Correct. more that's disconnections. Right. And if you're still using energy and you're all still stuck at home, you are accruing that debt. The problem is only pause. It is actually in some ways exacerbated, I suppose. Strictly mm -hmm. from an economical perspective, then there must be knock-on effects for the utilities as well. They have supplies to purchase, salaries to pay themselves, infrastructure to maintain. Is there a pinch being felt on that end of this? Yeah, you're exactly right that utilities have plenty of um, plenty of expenses that they need to cover as well. And I, I honestly don't know. I don't know if their utilities are experiencing a pinch in this way. I think those that are making significant efforts to help their consumers pay off some of their debt likely have to take that money from somewhere else. 
You started us off talking about insecurity as a means of being able to pay for the service or lose the service. So it's a pocketbook problem at its most simplified form. We should probably also look at this with climate change in mind. I would think that if we see some change in policies or technology or anything of the sort, and those two things, political policies and technology mean a lot, right? What are the most likely sorts of impacts that we could see as consumers? I think that there's a few different effects to consider here when we're talking about climate change. One is a climate change policy and an energy policy effect. And these coincide in the possibility that energy prices could rise as we move toward more innovative, advanced technologies, um, possibly more extreme technologies that cost a lot of money. And as we upgrade our infrastructure across the United States, we will inevitably see in most places prices rise. And so we will experience as a result an increase in energy insecurity. I think the other effect, though, is is simply through the weather. And with climate change, we have more erratic weather. And with more erratic weather all over, we have unpredictability. We have uh, more extreme weather events, more blackouts, for example. And all of these different conditions will also exacerbate energy insecurity. We also have uh, the state's typically don't have moratoria put in place, but they do have protections put in place at different times of the year for their customers. So some places, for example, have winter protections that might kick on in December and stay on through February, for example. And that is during that time period, you cannot be disconnected. Or if you're medically vulnerable, for example, you can't be disconnected. Now with the changing climate, these protections, which oftentimes are fairly old, do not necessarily align with weather patterns. And so what we see is more erratic weather patterns in the months and in the times when people aren't protected. And as a result, we will see more people be disconnected from their service providers during those time periods. And you see it from an energy perspective, like we have seen so many other ways, the disparate impact that the pandemic has uh, had on all of us. Hardships just made worse for some people that are already in a struggling way sometimes. And as you've said, millions of Americans are living with the difficulty of energy insecurity here. So Here's the big picture question. What's to be done? Well, I think that there's many things that can be done to address energy insecurity. I think uh, one thing that we can do temporarily while we're still in the pandemic and while we're headed into these very difficult winter months, one thing we can do is continue to protect individuals, protect households through moratoria. Uh, But there are many other tools in the toolkit, if you will, that the government and other entities can um, provide to help energy insecure families. So one is through weatherization assistance, and that is helping households weatherize, helping them upgrade and use a variety of different energy efficiency techniques, which will help reduce their energy burden and reduce their overall energy bills. Another thing that we can do is help subsidize and help provide access to clean energy technologies that allow a household to use more of the clean technology and use less of the electricity from the grid. For example, solar panels, if we were to uh, provide subsidies for solar panels for low-income households, then that's less money that they would be putting towards Uh, paying for electricity from their service providers. There are a variety of other techniques as well. There's debt relief that we can consider on the back end. Uh, There's energy efficiency investments that we can provide to schools and businesses, for example. Um, And there's also just energy assistance, the the LIHEAP program, the Low Income Home Energy Assistance Program. We can increase funding there, and this is essentially providing money that goes directly to households that need help paying their energy bills. 
So a lot of those ideas are, are speaking to people who would be in, in halls of power in capital cities, state and national level sort of folks, and regulators in between, I suppose, as well. That takes a bit of time, but if you had all of those people reading your paper, what's the big takeaway that you want them to come away from this research with? The biggest takeaway is that energy insecurity is a massive problem in the United States, and it's important to think deeply about all of the different forms of policy and other interventions that we can used to help this disadvantaged population. Some of those policies can be signed if there's a will for that, and we could all agree on some of those things. And you could do things like tax credits for winterizing things. I understand those things can be done and then distributed down the line in different levels. There was one mention there that you talked about uh, supplementing the energy that people take off of the electrical grid that we are all Mm -hmm. a part of here. Mm -hmm. That would seem to be difficult to implement in another way in the sense of Having, having to reach those people in various circumstances in their homes and various parts of the country, it's not like you could unfortunately not snap your fingers and make that happen. That would take some time as well as monetary investment. What Do you have any projection of what that might look like? Yeah, it will take time. We are right now in in the stages of a massive energy transition. And this energy transition is moving away from fossil fuels and toward cleaner, more efficient, more advanced forms of energy. And as part of this transition, we know that some populations are particularly benefited from it and others uh, do not get to experience some of the benefits and largely uh, share in the disproportionate burdens of the transition. And so uh, examples that that you just provided, solar power, for example, um, providing you know residential energy systems, we know that through this transition, if we don't put concerted effort toward it, that the same households, the low-income households, the households of color will not have access to these technologies. Uh, and so it, it, the the burden is on us. The, the onus is, is on us to make sure that we extend the benefits of these programs to these communities. It doesn't happen overnight, but it is. it requires a very conservative, large effort by all entities uh, in order to extend the benefits of the transition. You've been talking about energy. I'm thinking about the stuff that comes out of the wall. I plug something in, I flip a switch, but I assume this also applies to the stuff that falls out of the faucet. Is is water figuring into this as well, since we've talked about a little bit climate change and the, and the impacts that we're seeing and undergoing? Well, there is such a thing as, as difficulty paying for water bills as well. It's another form of a utility, and it's the same kind of uh, utility hardship that a lot of these households face. And and frankly, it's the same households who face all of these different forms of material hardship. And they are the same households that also were more likely to contract COVID in the early months of the pandemic and the same households that were most likely to have in um, individuals that worked on the front lines of, of um, employment in the communities. And so these tend to be households that are lower income. They tend to be households of color, individuals of color. Um, so yes, water is is another one of these challenges, and they um, these challenges are compounded by each other. And if you're on that end of the socioeconomic scale, as it were, often it's not you're going to be one of the last adopters of any new evolving technology or policies in place. Would we do well to hear to invert that model and, and put this really where it should be first rather than, say, in my house? Yeah, there's there's justification for that. We're actually working on a, a project right now that is looking at the importance of focusing on equity in early stage innovation. So as something is emerging in the marketplace, a new technology is emerging why it might be important to focus on equity and make sure that the most disadvantaged communities have access to it first. So uh, results to be uh, determined in the future. 
the ritual in our program, Dr. Carly, is we always try to end this with something positive. So in your studies of the problem, what sort of silver lining can you share with us as, as our personal go-home message today? I think the silver lining is that the next generation of thinkers, our students, are uh, incensed. They're outraged at the severity of this problem, and they are increasingly focusing on it in their studies and ready to tackle it in their professional future realms. And the abstraction is that's in the future, but in reality, that could be... Oh, they could graduate as early as this December. I mean, we have so many, we have some amazing alumni actually who are working in the field right now, working on topics of energy justice and climate justice who are genuinely making a difference. Dr. Sonia Carley from the O'Neill School of Public and Environmental Affairs at Indiana University. Thank you for joining us today. Oh, thank you so much for having me. And we thank you for joining us as well. For more information, follow us on social media. On Topic with IU is on Facebook and Twitter. And you can subscribe and download this podcast from services like SoundCloud, Apple Podcast, Google Podcast, Anchor, Spotify, Stitcher, and TuneIn. Just search On Topic with IU on your favorite podcast provider. From Bloomington, Indiana, for On Topic with IU, I'm Kenny Smith.